0: It's Wednesday, May the 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, did Margaret Thatcher play a role in the origins of Star Wars Day? Plus, why human hibernation for long-distance space travel might not actually be worth it. And a redone Bob Dylan recording on an all-new analog medium coming this Friday. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Well, today, May the 4th, is Star Wars Day. Because May the Force be with you, I probably don't need to explain that. Over the last decade or so, Star Wars Day has become a bigger and ever more mainstream deal. It is, as Lifehacker described it, quote, "...a made-up holiday now celebrated with at least as much passion as many real ones. Like Labor Day, it's really the sales that get people's motors running." End quote. I mean, I'd argue that most holidays are made up at some point, but yes, the commodification of the day is really what has cemented it as a perennial standard, graduating from the depths of online fan boards to actually IP owner sanctioned celebrations. But apart from Disney acquiring Star Wars back in 2012 and the mouse never turning away from an opportunity to squeeze more money out of a franchise, how was it that Star Wars Day became such a big deal? How did it first begin? I have a particularly vested interest in this because today is also my birthday and it is a strange experience to live most of your life with your birthday just being any other ordinary day of the year to suddenly sharing your birthday with a holiday. Like, there are people born on Christmas or Halloween who have always shared their birthday with a holiday, and then there are people born on normal non-holiday days, but all of us born on May 4th, or perhaps to a lesser extent on other newer holidays, like Mean Girls Day on October 3rd, or Galentine's Day on February 13th, we went from having an ordinary birthday to one that's a topic of conversation, oversaturated with puns and themed greeting cards. I'm learning what it means to be a person with a holiday for a birthday, and I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that yet, but it does make me extra interested in how this holiday became such a big deal in the first place. And, well, in the very first place, it turns out May the 4th Be With You was about Margaret Thatcher. According to the official Star Wars website and several other outlets over the years, the phrase, May the 4th be with you, was first used in reference to that particular date on May 4th, 1979, in a full-page ad in the London Evening Standard newspaper taken out by members of the Conservative Party to congratulate Thatcher on beginning her term as Prime Minister that day. The ad read, May the 4th be with you, Maggie. Congratulations. Two years after its release, the first Star Wars movie had become an international cultural phenomenon, and at the time Thatcher was elected, the second movie was actually shooting at Elstree Studios in England. There's even a photo of Thatcher on the steps of 10 Downing Street from later that year, flanked by stormtroopers and Darth Vader. I will say, I wasn't able to pull up any archival or photographic evidence of this particular newspaper ad. Tons of outlets and blogs over the past decade make this same claim, but none of them cite a primary source, so you may want to take it with a grain of salt. But there's no denying that Star Wars fervor had swept the world in the late 70s. And even though this Margaret Thatcher ad was perhaps the first instance of the phrase being used actually in reference to the date of May 4th, the pun had been deployed in a few other ways throughout 1978 and 1979. Over on the other side of the pond, a lot of newspaper headline writers were saying, May the 4th be with you to celebrate Independence Day, aka July 4th, here in the States. A gag which would be repeated by Lucasfilm in 2005 following the release of Revenge of the Sith. There's also a brief usage of the term in Alan Arnold's 1979 behind the scenes book, Once Upon a Galaxy, a journal of the making of the Empire Strikes Back. It became an in-joke at Lucasfilm starting in 1982, when now director of sound design at Skywalker Sound, Randy Tom, thought of the pun when he saw the call sheet for a day of shooting in the Redwood Forest, where the scenes on Endor were shot. Tom told the joke to others on set and ended up writing annual messages to the company in subsequent years with the heading, May the 4th be with you. Now, being that it's not all that original of a joke, I'm sure there were tons of people over the years in our pre-World Wide Web days who thought that they came up with the joke themselves. I'm sure it circulated among friend groups and fanzines and later on blogs and forums. But we don't start getting still-preserved, documented evidence for it again until the early 2000s. Know Your Meme cites a Guardian article from 2006 briefly making the joke before summarizing the TV listings for the day. But even that, one of the earliest documented mentions, jokes within it that the joke itself is old and overdone. By around 2009, Know Your Meme says it was typical for most online media outlets to run some kind of May the 4th Be With You content, showcasing various Star Wars fan celebrations around the world, from watch parties to themed weddings. And then, as I said, when Disney acquired Lucasfilm in 2012, Star Wars Day suddenly became a much bigger and much more commodified holiday. Sure, there was generally more excitement around the franchise because we had a lot of new content coming out, but the holiday also started taking on those Labor Day vibes that Lifehacker mentioned. It's a day to get 10% off the latest Star Wars Lego video game, and maybe tweet out an overdone meme later. This year, at least, Disney did have something a little exciting to share for the holiday. The latest trailer for the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+. The six-part series takes place ten years after the events of Revenge of the Sith, and at least in the trailer, shows Obi-Wan keeping an eye on young Luke. The first two episodes will drop on May 27th, link to watch the trailer is in the show notes. But in terms of fan celebrations and creations for the day, my friends Blue Milk Run have released a brand new Star Wars Day song for the seventh year running. Piggybacking on the Obi-Wan hype, this one is from the Jedi's perspective as sung to Anakin towards the end of Revenge of the Sith. Here's a listen. The truth is what we make of it. Your thoughts betray you, and us. It deals in absolutes Yeah, I know that that's an absolute It's over now I have the high ground And you lost I can't back down Don't make me take your legs So say Link to listen and buy that whole track, as well as any of Blue Milk Run's other albums, is in the show notes. And if you want to kick it old school, you can always listen to NPR's 1981 Star Wars radio drama, a five-hour retelling of A New Hope. Featuring several of the original actors, John Williams' score, and a lot of extra material, George Lucas actually sold the radio rights for this to NPR for just one dollar. Sci-fi novelist Brian Daly wrote the extra material, including an extended Death Star scene with Princess Leia being interrogated by Darth Vader. Now, officially, this hasn't been commercially released since an MP3 collector's edition in 2013, but there are several versions on YouTube, one of the best of which I'll link to in the show notes. You know, who knows how long Star Wars Day will last as a pseudo-holiday? Only as long as Disney keeps pumping out new material? Until low-effort, clickbait articles are finally purged from our online experience, if that day ever comes. Or will the fans keep it alive in some form or fashion for decades to come? For however long it lasts, may the fourth be with you. Well, if we humans want to actually travel to a galaxy far, far away, we'll have a lot of logistical hurdles to jump over that weren't ever portrayed in Star Wars. A big one is how to keep human space travelers alive and healthy on extremely long-term trips, like a year or several years at a time. One actually serious proposal being studied by at least the European Space Agency is basically hibernation. We pesky humans require so much food and water that trying to pack enough for even just a one-year journey would be a huge drain on the spacecraft's payload. So what if the astronauts just didn't need to eat or drink? And they could sleep through any boredom or existential dread that might set in after months hurtling through the great unknown. Well, never say never, but a new study published at the end of April in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B indicate that human hibernation, even for long space journeys, might not be worth all the trouble. Given the study's finding on the relationship between body mass and energy expenditure during hibernation, a human astronaut's energy savings might not make much of a dent. So in small animals that do true hibernation, because in bears it's a little more of a pseudo version, entering the state of torpor slows heart rate reduces body temperature, and shrinks the metabolism, resulting in a reduction of energy expenditure of nearly 98% in some instances, as well as as much as a quarter of body weight lost. Quoting Science Alert, If we applied the same basic mathematics to a hibernating adult human, a daily food intake of around 12,000 kilojoules would be replaced by a need for just a couple hundred kilojoules of body fat. Keeping with this scenario, we might imagine our intrepid space tourist tucked up in their specially kitted bed Would lose just over six grams of fat a day. Over a year, this would add up to around two kilograms of weight. Now, this might be fine for a rapid journey to the Jovian moons, but if the average adult wants to survive decades floating through interstellar space to a nearby star, they need to pack on an additional few hundred kilograms of fat. That or routinely wake to throw back a lard milkshake or three. End quote. So for this latest study, the team of Chilean researchers conducted a statistical analysis of various hibernating species, quoting again... From this, they concluded the daily energy expenditure of hibernating animals scales in a fairly balanced way. So a gram of tissue from a tiny mammal, like the 25 gram leaf-eared bat, consumes as much energy as a gram of tissue from an 820 gram hibernating ground squirrel. We could assume that if we worked out how to hibernate as efficiently as a dormouse, every gram of our tissue would require the same energy as every gram of theirs. It's a different story when mammals are active, however. The scaling of the relationship between active metabolism and mass produces a slightly different graph that reveals a point at which hibernating doesn't really save a great deal of energy for bigger beasts. That point is near our own mass, implying our total energy needs while hibernating aren't going to be significantly different from those while we're merely at rest." End quote. But the ESA emphasizes in a post earlier this year that some kind of hybrid hibernation like bears do, even one that just reduces the metabolic rate of the astronauts by 25%, could dramatically cut down on the amount of food and supplies they'd have to pack along with them. If they could safely mimic a form of hibernation, as hospitals have been doing since the 80s, it might pay off at least in terms of payload reduction and likely psychologically as well. But the whole thing is just wild to think about. I mean, imagine if one of your family members became one of the first humans to go to Mars, but for a few months, they're just asleep somewhere up in the stars. Like, not only are they on their way to Mars, but they're just snoozing up there for months at a time. I mean, the things we humans have come up with... Well, one more space thing before I leave you today. Mark your calendars for May 12th, or make sure to tune in here, because the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration is set to make a big announcement that day about some Milky Way discovery. Now, if you don't recognize the name of that team, they are the ones who released the first-ever image of a black hole back in 2019, so they do tend to deliver when they tease big announcements. The press conference on the 12th will be hosted by the National Science Foundation, with six other simultaneous press briefings being held around the world, so it could be something fairly big. Or not. Always best not to get your hopes up too much on these sorts of things. In other news, on Friday, Bob Dylan is releasing a new recording of his hit 1965 song, Subterranean Homesick Blues. The re-recording is the first from producer T-Bone Burnett's intriguing Iconic Originals project, which is a new analog sound technology Burnett describes as being better than vinyl, CD, streaming, or any other recorded music. Quoting him, An iconic original is the pinnacle of recorded sound. It's archival quality. It's future-proof. It is one of one. Not only is an iconic original the equivalent of a painting, it is a painting. It is lacquer painted onto an aluminum disc with a spiral etched into it by music. This painting, however, has the additional quality of containing that music, which can be heard by putting a stylus into the spiral and spinning it. Analog sound has more depth, more harmonic complexity, more resonance, better imaging. Analog has more feel, more character, more touch. Digital sound is frozen. Analog sound is alive. End quote. I will have to dig into what exactly that means at another point in the future, and perhaps we'll get a better idea when this new Dylan re-recording drops on Friday. The original Subterranean Homesick Blues video was shot by legendary filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker and used as the opening for his concert documentary on Bob Dylan, Don't Look Back, a great film following Dylan on tour in the UK right when he shifted from folk to a more rock vibe. Also, Allen Ginsberg is standing in the background for part of the music video. Just a fun pop-up video fact for you there. And I will also do a little shameless plug here for a music video from an anti-orchestra punk band that my brother was in over a decade ago. The band was called Mount Righteous, and the song in the video is Suburban Homesick Blues. It's an early aughts take on Dylan's classic with all the at-times-frustrated, at-times-contented ennui of suburbia. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.